Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like Him, and live out His mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit contrast.church. As the, the cello implies, we are at a bittersweet moment. We are uh, at week 73 of Matthew, and next week, Easter, will be our last week in Matthew. So uh, we are excited to finish, but also sad, because there, believe it or not, there are other books in the Bible. Um, but <laughs> if it's your first week here, uh, you can get started later today. You might finish by the end of the week to listen to all 73 weeks to catch up, um, <laughs> if you're really dedicated. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so we're, we're going to be in Matthew 26. If you have your Bibles or your phone or whatever, that's totally fine. We have Bibles in the back. You can grab one of those and steal one of those if you want to keep it. Uh, I'm, I'm going to be reading out of the NET version, but whatever you have is, is fine. We're going to be in Matthew 26, and uh, today's going to be a little bit unique. Today, actually, on our calendar is Palm Sunday. So if, if you know what Palm Sunday is, if you don't, it's basically this the big culminating moment of Jesus entering into the city of Jerusalem, which is his last week uh, on earth in his public ministry until he's crucified. And then Easter, next Sunday, Jesus resurrects. Now, the reason why that matters and why it's important is because as we center in on Holy Week this week, which is what we call this whole week, uh, every, every day and every scripture and every detail is meticulously um, rooted in the whole Old Testament, the you know, first half of the Bible, and, and it's just insane to walk through. So us as a church, you know, I was kind of, I grew up uh, Easter guy, Come, out, come to church on Easter, Palm Sunday, it was like, okay, we'll do Hosanna, all that kind of stuff. But then I never really celebrated any other days of the week. I never really like read it through any of them. And then as I was studying for Matthew a long time ago, I, I learned that of the four gospel uh, stories of Jesus, there's four different pe- people who write about Jesus, uh, over a quarter of all of the writing is just about this one week, this holy week that we call it, or passion week as some call it. So I thought, man, that, like, I really need to inundate myself in what's going on here. And uh, I started to study even this week for, for this teaching and for this week, because we're going to have some other events we'll do. And then we also have an app that walks through the scripture each day. And I had an Inception moment. If you ever watched the movie Inception, where either at some point in the movie, or several points, your mind is just blown and you get like goosebumps. And you're like, this is insane. And maybe you've only watched it one time. And you, I think you've got to watch it at least seven or eight times to actually get what's going on. But, but it's kind of like that. There is so many things going on uh, that's deeply and... and, and uh, just steeped in the Jewish culture that a lot of times we don't understand. And so I'm going to try and unearth a little bit of that, and I'm going to set the stage for this week as we talk a little bit today about this passage and then about this whole week that we call Holy Week. So even though today is Palm Sunday, funny enough, our church actually celebrated Palm Sunday the first week of January. So uh, we were a little off because what we did was that whole week, which would be this week, today till next, till, till Easter, we took and we spread out, and so we've been covering that week for the last three months, essentially, and so this has been uh, just a great journey through that. So even though today is technically Palm Sunday on the calendar, the passage we're reading is actually on a Wednesday, so I know that's kind of confusing, but this will, this will kind of show you a little bit of timeline here. So this is a really cool timeline. If you're one of the references, this is on Bible Gateway, and it shows you the timeline of Holy Week uh, right up here, and it's really hard to read and small, but it has all the characters in each, like, uh, you know, moment of the story that has all the, the four gospel scriptures in there. And so when you zoom in, we're on Wednesday right now, and that's kind of where we're at right there. It's a Wednesday, maybe morning, afternoon, brunch time. 
uh, because we know that later in the day they'll prepare for what we call the Last Supper, which was on Thursday night, and we'll be celebrating that as a church too. So this is just a really simple way of seeing that. Now, here's the thing before we get to the next slide. The most confusing thing in this entire Holy Week is the fact that uh, we, don't, we don't see days and count days the same as Jewish people did. So we count days, you know, from 12, 12 a.m. to 11.59. They would count days from sunset to sunset. Does that make sense? So, you know, 6.30 p.m., whatever, till next 6.30. So when you do a Sabbath, if you're Jewish, you do it on Friday night at 6.30 till Saturday night at 6.30. So this whole week is incredibly confusing because they're talking about Jewish days, but they don't always line up, right? One Jewish day might actually have two uh, Gregorian calendar, I don't know what our time thing is called, but that day. So this is a, this is a really confusing clip art way that has been created, uh, timeline of, of all of this. And if you see here, that's the whole week, right? And Nissan is like their month. So it'd almost be like, you know, we have January, February. Nissan is one of the months and then the days. But if you look, they zoom into Thursday and Friday. This is, this is Jewish Nissan 14, but Thursday starts here and it goes the, Friday goes the whole way over to here, which is almost two Jewish days, depending on when you look at it. So it, it can be very confusing. And, and so I just want to get set that out straight. I'm sorry if you're confused, but I'm, I was confused. <laughs> My gosh, I had to look at so many graphs because I was like, what is happening? And so uh, fortunately enough, we're not going to be this detailed right now. But what I am going to do is I'm going to give you a little bit of just an overview of this week because it's going to matter and it's going to give you that inception goosebump uh, feeling eventually. So uh, what we're going to do is we're going to just for the sake of simplicity, okay, you can, you can write stuff down and email me tomorrow. Uh, we're going to use... We're going to do the classic American thing, and we're going to use our own system that doesn't make any sense with the rest of the world. So we're going to just use our normal days. Okay? We're going to not worry about the Jewish days or calendar, and we're just going to do the classic uh, days of the week. Okay? And we're going to, I just want to kind of talk about what's going on throughout this week. Friday, Saturday, and then this would be Easter Sunday. Okay, so we're right here today. Okay, but in our passage, we're actually, you know, like, we're, like, right here, okay? So don't worry about those days. You, Hannah, you can take that down because you're probably just going to confuse everyone more. <laughs> so as we get into this passage, all right, we're going to be in verses 1 through, uh, 1 through 19, basically. And I'm going to pull out my Bible because I'm going to add something here that I did in the first service. But we're going to read verses 1 through 2 in Matthew 26. If you're there, that'd be great. I don't think we'll have it all on the screen, so try to follow along here. Matthew 26, when Jesus had finished saying all these things, he told his disciples, you know that after two days, the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. All right, so pause there and then go to verse 17. So you're going to skip down a little bit to verse 17. Now on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus and said, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my time is near. I will observe the Passover of my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had instructed them, and they prepared the Passover. Okay, now this is really important. As we, as we talk about the scripture today, I want you to think about it like three bookends. And so the Passover is the big chunk. It's going to cover the whole idea of this passage and really the rest of the week. We call this week Holy Week as a church, uh, but another, another name for it is Passion Week. Maybe you've heard of that, and there's the movie The Passion. And passion, the Latin word is passio, and it means to endure suffering. So if you ever wonder, like, what, is, what does passion mean? Why? And think about it. Like, when you say, oh, I'm passionate about something, typically it would mean, like, your heart stirs for it, right? Like, there's this deep, 
seated reality in your heart. Like, I just, I, I need this thing, or I need to help do this thing, or whatever, right? You're passionate about it. So this is the start of what we would call the passion. And, and uh, as you can see in the, in the scriptures, Jesus is sort of letting them know, hey, uh, in two days during the Passover, um, I'm going to be handed over and killed. Now, what he's doing here is he's talking about this idea of the Passover, which I'm going to give you just a really quick history lesson on because it's, you're going you're gonna to see the, the beauty of this. So the Passover, it was literally passing over. That's like what, what the word is referring to. And it's referring to when the Israelites, which are Jewish people you know, at this time, are remembering when they were enslaved by Egypt. When they were enslaved by Egypt and God brought them out of Egypt and had them wander around and then they eventually found the promised land where they are now in the land of milk and honey, right? And when they were enslaved, God gives 10 plagues. If you're like familiar with any of those, some weird, crazy gnats and frogs and famine and boils and all that stuff. But then the 10th plague is the most insane one and it's the one that Pharaoh finally just, he breaks, right? Because he kind of goes, he goes back and forth, right, the whole time. And what, what it was is the angel, the angel of the Lord would come and would kill the firstborn of every human and animal. It was essentially just desecrating the future of, of Egypt because they were such idolatrous people and Pharaoh was basically God to them. And so, he, so that was the 10th plague. However, the Jewish people were able to be saved if they sacrificed the lamb and they put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. And what this, the angel would do is pass over the door. So not only did it protect them there, but then that was the final leading of them out of uh, slavery. So they celebrate the Passover as a memorial every year because it reminds that God wants them to be reminded of the slavery that they had been in that God had freed them from. So that's the Passover. Now, the way they would celebrate it is really complex and really unique, and I'm going to simplify what is written very strictly in the Old Testament of how they do it. But there was a certain day of the year they had to do it on based on their calendar, and what they would do is, it would be a two-day, usually, observance of it with four days leading up, and then there was festivals on either end. And so what they would do is, and he, he mentioned in the verse, the festival of the unleavened bread, which would start, and it would go about a week, and then t- traditionally, they'd have another festival of the first fruits that would overlap. Nowadays, modern Jews just kind of celebrate them both together. But uh, basically, it was unleavened because they would remove all of the leaven from their house. Now, I know you're, you're like, Leaven, what, I mean, unless you're a baker, it's just kind of, it's yeast, basically. And you're like, okay, a very interesting thing. Let's celebrate by removing all the yeast. Let's have flatbread all week, you know? But what they were doing was, leaven was this idea it would make things rise, it would grow and expand. And leaven, in this symbol, was, was a symbol for sin. And so what they do, and even modern-day Jews today, if they're serious well, uh, Jews, they will literally remove anything that has leaven, and they will remove any leaven many corners of the kitchen and the house to get rid of it all. It's this symbolic idea of purging sin out of your life to be able to, to, to commemorate and to celebrate the Passover. So they'd be doing this, and, and this would be something they'd be a part of. And, and we talked about uh, several weeks ago how the Passover was the, the, most, the biggest event in Jerusalem all year. So granted, he's about 40,000 people. Jerusalem was around that size. Imagine five times the amount of people being here for an entire week in only this area. Good luck driving around. Good luck going to a restaurant. Good luck going to a hotel, right? Like, you just can't do it. So Jerusalem was super inflated because everyone would come back and celebrate. And, uh, and it was a feast. So it was a time of celebration. They weren't allowed to work. It was, it was an exciting time. But what's, what's wild about this and that we have to remember is that during this, Rome controls essentially Jerusalem. So when you have a city of 40,000 with 2,000 police officers or Roman legionaries, and then you have 250,000 people there on, on a week, 
you're going to get a little stressed out, right? Because if they ever wanted to take back their city from Rome, now's the time. So everybody's on edge, and that's why part six of Matthew is called the storm, because when Jesus on Palm Sunday enters into the city, he is causing a lot of t- more tension that's already on top of everything. So they're celebrating the Passover this week, and that would typically be celebrated depending on the time of the day of, the day of their calendar, Nisan 15 or 14. Uh, it would be typically around this time right here, and I'm, I'm marking it generally, um, because it was a two-day thing. They would sacrifice the lamb in the temple as like a kind of a significant thing, but then people would go into their own homes, sacrifice their own lambs, and have their own feasts. So it would typically uh, happen on, you know, a Friday afternoon. They'd sacrifice, sacrifice a lamb, okay? And then what they would do is they had to basically practice a Sabbath, um, because of that, and then when the sun went down, which was another day for them, another Jewish day, they would then eat the feast, the lamb, let's just call it the lamb's feast, or the, what we call the Passover meal, okay? So they would do that, all right? And what happened was, and this is just a little side note, is they had to have a Sabbath after that, but then they always have the weekly Sabbath. They would practice every week. So essentially, they had to take two days of Sabbath in a row. And that's why um, whenever Jesus is dying and they put him in the tomb, it's a big deal because they needed to get him in the tomb before the Sabbath hit because it was going to be a two-day Sabbath. And that's why the women don't run to the tomb until Sunday morning, which we would say in the Jewish calendar would be three days because they had Sabbath. They weren't allowed. So that kind of maybe gives you, oh, that makes more sense now. But as we get to this, you're like, this is really detailed, Trey. This is a lot going on, okay? We have, to, we have to know that there's a lot else going on in this whole passage in the Passover for these Jewish leaders, the Jewish people. And the main thing that would start this week, uh, which is really cool, you can watch like a video or study this with the Jewish culture, but is they had, they had to select their lamb. So they had to go out and they had to pick an unblemished lamb. Okay, now I, don't, I haven't studied enough have time to study like what would require as a blemish. But, I mean, if it was sick or anything like that, definitely couldn't be picked. And then when they picked one, they would basically have around four days to, to, um, to, to analyze and to inspect the lamb for any other blemishes. So, you know, right away you'd pick a good one, but then maybe a day or two later you notice something's wrong with it or whatever. You had to go back and get another one. So you inspected for blemishes, okay? And then, uh, you know, on around here they'd have the, cer- the sacrifice ceremony. They'd go home, they'd sacrifice their own, and then they'd celebrate typically the Passover meal on the next Jewish day, Friday night. So that is Passover. Okay, that's like the most general uh, idea of what's going on. Now I want to read the story of what Jesus is doing here. So we had the Passover bookends, and now we're going to get into the, uh, the betrayal, which is in verse, read verse 3 through 5. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people, these are the leaders, met together in the palace of the high priest, who was named Caiaphas, They planned to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him, but they said not during the feast so that there won't be a riot among people. Now turn to verse 14, back down to 14. This is the other bookend. Then one of the 12, the one named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me to betray him, Jesus, into your hands? So they set out 30 silver coins for him, and from that time on, Judas began looking for an opportunity to betray him. So you've got the Passover, right? And then you have this betrayal with the chief, the chief priests and leaders, and they're meeting at the high priest. The high priest is like the, the CEO of the, of the highest priests of the gathering. So he's got a big week. You know, I mean, he's going to do the sacrifice stuff. And the high priest was also politically charged by Rome. Rome was, it used to be, you had a lineage of who would be high priest. 
But then Rome took over, and they're like, no, nah, we're not going to do that. We're going to pick the guy. And so for 100 years in this span, there was 28 high priests, uh, which if you're wondering, is not a very good, it's supposed to be a lifelong thing. Uh, so if you're wondering, they, they were, got rid of him pretty quickly. Caiaphas had, actually had 18 years. So he was by far one of the most probably sleazy, snaky guys because he, he survived Rome and Jew, the Jewish culture for 18 years. But they go into his courtyard, and they're like talking, and they're trying to figure this out. And if you notice, they say, we got to do it by stealth because of the feast. Okay, so there's tons of people here. They don't want to create a ruckus. But they also know we need to kill him because if we wait too long, the other feast will happen. And then we can't do it then, and he'll probably leave by then. You know, he might, he'll probably leave at the end of Passover, and he'll be gone, and then we'll miss our window to kill him. And this is why there's that sense of urgency. This is why they, they get him at night. This is why Judas, try, it, they need his help, right? You ever wonder, like, why do they need Judas's help? Because he knew his whereabouts, and they just would inform exactly where they could go and do it, where they made sure no one else was around to cause this big stink. So that's, that's what's going on here, okay? And that, this is what will bring us to the main meat and the focus of our passage today, which is in, uh, verse, starts in verse 6. And this is called the anointing. Now, when Jesus was in Bethany, which is a town right outside near the Mount of Olives that he would, he would see in that area each night, at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of expensive perfumed oil, and she poured it, it out on his head as he was at the table. Now, there's, there's several Gospels right about this story, so we have a lot of different information we can pull together. And most would argue that this is Mary, the brother of Lazarus. Lazarus was one who, before coming to Jerusalem, Jesus um, resurrected. So, like, his, you know, grand opus miracle before he came into Jerusalem. So they're very close. However, it's pretty important that Matthew doesn't include her name. Uh, one commentator put, seems that what she did and its significance in the setting is more important than her personal identity. So for the sake of that, I will not really refer to her much as Mary because I think the anonymity is the important, actually, part of it. Um, but regardless, let's, let's just get to the oil here because this is kind of interesting, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but maybe you wear expensive perfume, right? But you're not going to find this jar at Sephora, okay? It's, uh, it's, it's a unique jar, and according to Mark's account, it's very expensive, this is a good modern-day version of it. I love how it's called Abba, which means Father. Uh, anointing prayer oil. It is spikenard. That's another name for it, which is not a very good name. But uh, nard or spikenard was typically an Indian fragrance, very expensive, used for wealthy people to smell good, used uh, for burials and things like that. But Mark gives us a uh, money amount. He says it's worth about 300 denarii, which was essentially a year's wage. If you were like a common person, you made a denarii a day. So 300 denarii. Today, let's just simplify it. If you make 50K, it's a $50,000 bottle of oil. If you only make 20K, it's still a $20,000 bottle of oil, right? It is your whole year that you have worked for. It is that, right? So I don't know if she paid in full or what she put down to, do, to get that, but she did. And it's incredibly expensive. Now, what's unique about this oil um, is nowadays, if we want to wear good smelling perfume or cologne or whatever, I mean, you can buy a bottle of Axe for $4. So I'm not saying that people won't be like, oh, it's Axe. But if you want to buy an upper, you know, you can buy super expensive perfume. But we can smell good for pretty cheap. Right? Old Space is not that expensive. Uh, now, th th this time, though, you really couldn't. Like, it was a high-end thing. And some women would even wear a little jar around their neck with, like, a little bit of an open top with that in it. And you, they would smell good. So think about a status symbol. You'd walk into a room, and people would smell that. They knew, like, oh, rich person's around. Like, that's literally how it worked. It'd be like, you know, if you drive a G-Wagon, you come into a parking lot. You're like, well, they didn't find that on the street. Like, there's not a, like, even if you get a good deal on a G-Wagon, like, it's not a great deal compared to every other car, right? So 
It's kind of like that. You can assume things of people who have this oil. So anytime people would smell it, it would basically bring up either the idea of burial and death and all that or money, wealthy people. And so what does she do? She takes this oil and she opens it in this room, this guy's house who probably was a leper, is probably not currently a leper. It's probably healed by Jesus because you would not host people if you were a leper. Uh, but they're at this guy's house eating, reclining at the table. She comes in. She breaks this seal, or sometimes you even had to like actually shatter the top because it was ceramic. And they smell this, this, this fragrance, right? Now what's unique about it, and I mentioned this, is this type of specific nard or fragrance was used for more so for burial. In the Jewish culture, when you died and they'd bury you, they didn't, they didn't have embalming. Or, I mean, the Egyptians sort of did a long time ago, but they would more so just wrap your body like with cloth and then sprinkle some and then wrap it and then sprinkle it so that you just smell good through the process of everything. And so that's what it remind you of, but it was a very like reverent, honoring thing. Or like I said, or you're wealthy. But for her to do this in this room at this time would be very confusing. Okay? Now, I know you're like probably having a hard time putting yourself there. So the best way to describe it would be, let's say that I invite you over to my house, and we're just kicking back. We're just cooking out. I'm having some burgers. Nothing, nothing fancy. Maybe, maybe some waffle fries instead of crinkle cut. But just some, just some normal dinner, right? Some Kool-Aid maybe. And then all of a sudden, I invited someone else who came. And you don't really know them. And they come in and they say, hey, you know what? I just brought a $50,000 bottle of wine. Let's open it. Why not? And you're like, what? Or if you're not a wine drinker, you don't drink it all or whatever. I just brought A2 Wagyu steaks imported from Japan. These cows have had a better adolescence than you did, you know? And, and we're going to eat them. Put them on the grill. And I'll be like, I'm just not even going to touch it, right? But you're like, why in the world would you bring something like that? Just read the room, bro. Like, we're just eating burgers here. But also, you're a little bit like, wow, that's pretty cool. Like, I might want to try that. But you're also like, can I take my glass and sell it and then do something with the money? I mean, it's a $5,000 glass of wine. I'd rather have the $5,000. I could do a lot with that. And, and you know, so do you see how, like, you immediately are, like, confused? This guy's kind of a, like, I would question his financial purchases. You know, he's like, oh, it's a business write-off, you know, or whatever. But it, it would be like, I don't, I don't know if I try. You don't make good decisions. Like, I would be like, I would judge, I would judge you. You could, you could charge, you could... Or we could rent our whole church, you know, for the year with that, right? Why are you wasting that on our cookout? Okay, so that's, that's kind of the tension that is in this moment. And so, I mean, they're, they're eating this on like a Wednesday morning lunch sometime around there, maybe even like later, eat later in the day. And they're just sitting around this guy's house eating, and she comes in and does this, okay? And we see from the story that she, I mean, it's a very emotionally charged and beautiful moment. I mean, she is anointing his head, which was, which was actually common with wealthier people, they would anoint you, like, she smells good and all that in the room. But it was typically, like, not super expensive spike nard. You know, think, like, canola oil, not truffle oil, you know? Like, you're not, you're not oh, I'm just going to fry up some veggies. Let me just dump, like, pounds of truffle oil in the pan. No, you're using, like, the cheap stuff, right? So it was really weird that she did this with this expensive oil. But she goes and she does this. And then she starts, in the other accounts, it says that she starts crying and using her hair and, like, anointing and wiping his feet. I mean, it's just like this insane, emotional, intimate act that this woman is, is partaking in. And once again, you're sitting at the table and you're like, I'm just here to eat the, crinkle, or the waffle fries, you know? Like, what is going on? And you start to, you know, you start to ask questions and that's where we get to verse 8 or 9. This is where it happens. It says, when the disciples saw this, they became indignant or like very angry. They said, why this waste? It could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor, which, you know what? They're not wrong. In fact, a couple of days ago, Jesus was like, you know, talking about the poor, and, and that's how you love me, is you love the marginalized of our community. And, and so they're like not wrong. You know, I mean, that's a pretty valid uh, point. 
So they're kind of angry and they're confused. Okay, but if, if I was to redo this situation that we had, my cookout at my house, let's just let's shift a little bit. Maybe it'll help you get what's going on, actually going on here. Let's say that for whatever reason, you're like a fighter pilot. You're in the military. You're in the Air Force. And you have a really dangerous mission tomorrow. And you know that there's like a 90% chance you're not going to come back. There's like four of you going to do the secret mission. You can't talk about it. Uh, no one really knows. Maybe your wife and, or your husband or whatever. And, and you go to do it. And you're going to go do it. But I'm like, hey, you want to come over for burgers today? And for whatever reason, you really like me. So you're like, you know what? Let's do it. Let's go over to Trey's house. I might die tomorrow, but I'll hang out with my wife and kids tonight or our spouse or whatever. I'm going to do it. So you come over to my cookout, and you don't tell me. I don't really know this. I know you're a fighter pilot. I know you do dangerous missions. I have no idea. I'm, we're, just, we're just watching our kids throw the wiffle ball in the backyard, and I'm making burgers, and I'm trying to cook them average, right? And, and then this, this, this friend that I invite comes in and brings in the, you know, the bottle of wine, whatever. It, you know, if you're that fighter pilot, you're like, this is insane. Like, no one knows. But, like, I might die tomorrow. This is so, like, timely. Like, what a beautiful moment that I have my last meal with some of my best friends, and they had no, this person had no idea, and, like, they're going to, you know, we're basically celebrating something that no one knew about, right? It wasn't an anniversary. It wasn't a birthday. That's what's going on here. Jesus is essentially aware, and he alludes to, you know, I'm going to be handed over in two days of the Passover, and the disciples hear this, but they don't really believe it. You know, I mean, they just don't believe it. They're like, whatever, it's not going to happen. But this woman is so timely in what she's doing with this oil. And I would argue that she doesn't really know. Like, she doesn't really know that she's anointing him for burial. She's just, I love Jesus so much. What is it like the, how can I worship him with everything I have? And that's what she's doing with this oil. But the deeper beauty of this is that Jesus knows what's happening. And he knows where he's going to go in two days. And he knows that the mission is, he's not going to come out. And he also knows that everyone around him seems to deny it or not really like think through it critically. So he's very alone. He's very alone. Basically, from, from this moment on, he's alone until he dies. I mean, some people, some disciples sort of hide and watch, but he's 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 alone. You know, this is his last day basically with his with his friends. And so there's this, you can see this like the beauty of this moment, even though she really has no idea what's going on. And then and, and he gives it away. He says in verse 10, when Jesus learned of, you know, their indignancy, they're like, you know, giving me looks, scoffing, probably talking, whatever. He says to them, why are you bothering uh, this woman? She has done a good service for me. The, the Greek word is kalos, which I think uh, this is the most accurate meaning of the actual word, but the, the spirit behind it, other translations will say, a beautiful thing, a noble thing, a good deed, and one translation which I love says lovely. She has done a lovely thing for me, which is so wild to see the word waste and lovely in the same, same basically sentence. They said, what a waste, and he said, what is lovely? How often do we deem things a waste that Jesus deems lovely? And I can't imagine how beautiful and comforting this is for him, which is why he's willing to let this happen. Right? He doesn't say, no, 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 don't waste that on me. There's lots of poor people to feed. And in this moment, he knows what is going to occur. And he says this in verse 11, for you will always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. We know Jesus has a heart for the poor, okay? In this moment, he's not just throwing away his teaching. In this moment, he's pointing to something much deeper. And he says, when she poured this oil on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. And like I said, Jesus has let them know that he is going to be crucified and what's happening here that we don't really understand very deeply in the Jewish culture is it was a really big deal that you'd be buried. It was a very big deal as a Jew. If, if, I mean, even if you were poor and had no money, they literally had funds set aside 
so that you could pay for people to get properly buried. Now, it wouldn't be like, you know, you wouldn't have a private tomb, but you'd be in a plot. I mean, they would not let people not be buried. It was a very spiritual, like, part of their beliefs. And, and so when you're crucified, though, you, you, odds are you weren't going to be given over to be buried um, because it was an execution. Now, even, like, criminals that were Jewish would still get buried. I mean, they were like, it doesn't matter. But a, but a crucifixion was done by the Romans. It was their, their uh, law. And so they were in charge of the execution. They were also had the ability to decide what they did with the body. And so when you get crucified, typically what would happen is they'd either leave you up on the cross and birds and things would eat you, or they'd, let you, they'd take you off and just set you there, and then weather and birds and animals and stuff would just eat your body. Right? And you weren't, people weren't allowed to steal it. Like if they took it, it was a really big deal. And so that's what, when he says, I'll be crucified, I mean, that, that is the reality of what will happen. Now, you know, if you know the story, that doesn't really happen. There's this Joseph who walks by, and you know, he's a wealthy guy, and, right, and they figure out the tomb and all that. But in the moment, though, she is anointing him. She is giving him the proper burial that he deserves before it even happens. And no one even really knows, which is why this moment is so beautiful in what's going on. Because the story of Jesus is that he is perfectly matching the Passover reality as the final lamb in Passover. So Jesus, if we zoom out on Holy Week here, Jesus is the unblemished lamb that is selected by Jerusalem. He enters into Jerusalem, and he knows like he is, he is it, right? He is the sacrifice that will be given on the lamb. And then they have a three to four days of arguments and debates and people questioning his validity, does this guy really know what he's talking about? And we know throughout the story that Jesus is without blemish, right? He's not sinned. He is perfect. And he has, he has given us not only the ability to see the prototypical view of humanity, but also through it push us to this, this week and this sacrifice. And, and when, they, when, when they, they goes through all of this, on Monday, which is the day they would purge all the leaven or all the sin, Jesus goes directly into the temple he flips over the tables, and what is he doing? He's purging sin and greed out of his father's house, which is the temple, right? And so he, he removes, you know, all the leaven, if you will, for the week coming. And then on Wednesday, right, which is where they start getting into preparation time, right? They start getting ready for the dinner and preparing that, and they, and they finally confirm the lamb is good, right? We get into this moment where Jesus is anointed, I think I spelled that wrong. I, uh, I don't know. You know how to spell it. Oh, I... <laughs> it's hard enough to write straight. He's anointed. And then what happens is we know that he dies on Friday around 3 p.m., which would be the time that the sacrifice of the lamb would occur. And then the, at around 6 or 7 p.m., because that was the next day, they would eat the Passover meal. So Jesus dies... Okay, he is the unblemished lamb. And then while, he, and, and, and this is just a little caveat, everything that's going on here, like the mess, you know, the, the storming troops, the trials, all that kind of stuff, that's all happening at night because these religious leaders are like, we got a big day, like we got to get this done. Like we got to move this forward, which is why they're in such a hurry. That's why they do it so quickly. It's why they do it at night. Because where are they when Jesus dies and then he's placed in the tomb before the Sabbath hits? Where are they? I mean, they're, they're, gonna, they're eating the Passover meal. So what's ironic about this is Jesus dying and hanging on a cross and everyone else is celebrating the very thing that he will fulfill alone. Which it is just at this point, if you don't, I tell you what, if, if this isn't an apologetic, I don't know what is, because 
you know, I, I've talked a lot about how, like, no one really argues that Jesus wasn't real. Historical accounts, secular and Christian, it's very easy to know Jesus was a man. The question is, was he God, right? Now, he's either brilliant and a normal human or he's God, right? I mean, it's like Inception. You watch it and you're like, everything that I'm reading is so, like, perfectly manicured. It's just ridiculous, right? And so this anointing is, is not just pointing to this beautiful moment. It is pointing to the reality of this woman who doesn't even know what she has to offer being this just remarkable thing that Jesus uses and embraces as, as the, the anointing of the lamb who will die as a sacrifice for his people. And so I want to just summarize this to cap it all off because I know it's a lot. Um, one of our scholars we use, R.T. Friend, says, the woman's extravagant loyalty offsets this shameful horror of crucifixion. It's not simply just a model for her uncalculated devotion, but an affirmation of the value of his death. So I think we just get to the question, you know, do you love Jesus enough that you're loyal enough to give up anything, right? To honor him with anything you can think of in your mind. Are you willing to let people think you're crazy, Right? Like, this woman is not financially smart. She's selfish, right? And so I think this begs the biggest question, and this will be, I mean, if you have one question you want to write down, and, and we'll use this in formation time, is what are you needing to get o- give over to Jesus? What are you needing to give over to Jesus? For her, I mean, it's $50,000. I'm not saying you've got to write a check for $50,000 today, um, but maybe it's, maybe it's just, right, is it just continually providing for meal trains? Is it serving and moving people? At our church, we have a lot of people that move. Is it hanging out and living among people that you normally wouldn't choose to be with or be friends with? Is it using gifts that God has given you in a more kingdom-minded way? Is it actually having a conversation with your neighbor instead of running into your house or your apartment? Right? What are these things that we're not willing to give over? We hold on to them. I would argue that typically it's the first thing that comes to your mind, and then the question then becomes, the rubber hits the road, why am I not giving that up? Why am I not willing? And that's what I hope you'll reflect on this entire week. Why am I not willing to give that up? Charles Spurgeon, what a great guy, says, is anything actually wasted that is all for Jesus? He says, it might rather seem as if all would be wasted which was not given to him. Loyalty to Jesus requires extravagant worship and generosity as we give all of ourselves. Uh, S.K. Weber sums this up. I want to invite the band up as we close here. He says, what honor and blessing awaits you as you begin to give extravagantly of yourself to the king? Compare this gain with what you lose by withholding yourself. We serve a generous king, and he seeks generous worshipers. So if there's anything that you learn today, it is that. We have a generous king, and he seeks generous worshipers, and so there is something that you can give, something that you don't want to give up. What is it? Give it up. Give it away. Even if people think you're crazy. The closest people to Jesus thought she was crazy, right? In fact, it, it seems kind of uh, ironic that the next verses after this, I talked about the betrayal, is the true follower of Jesus in this story is an unnamed woman who knows nothing about what she's doing with an extravagant gift. And the, fa- the fake follower, the false follower, is a disciple who is full of greed and frugality and bargains for 30 silver coins, Jesus' death. Think about who, who was the true follower there. It's pretty easy, and it has nothing to do with status, right? So for us, can we see that type of generosity in the gospel 
as we remind ourselves of the sacrifice that Jesus made. And as we transition into a time of formation, which we offer each Sunday, we have a couple different things that we believe formation is becoming formed into the image of Christ. You believe in Jesus with your heart, but we, through our actions and our mind, we become more formed to the image of Christ with the Holy Spirit. And so these are ways we do this as a community today so that you're not just a consumer. So we want you to reflect, what do I need to give up for Jesus? What am I not willing to and why? We have people in the back who would love to pray for you. Uh, you can also just sit and pray, but we have people in the back specifically who want to pray for you. Maybe they'll put it on our prayer wall in our prayer room and pray for you or your friend this week. We also believe giving is an act of not just obedience, but worship and faith. And then lastly, the bread and cup, which is something we offer uh, each Sunday. Thursday, we will actually partake in the whole experience. But today is one third of that experience and it is the bread and cup. And as we close, as, we, as a reminder, Jesus essentially ate this dinner a day early. Says, you know, he said in verse 18, 19, you know, I want to prepare the Passover. Where should we prepare the Passover meal? The disciples are confused because they're, you typically would practice, you would have the meal within a Jewish day, which like I said is different. It lines up differently. But they essentially have it a day early. And guess what? They get there and they have this whole thing prepared. And then they're like, where's the main course? Where's the lamb? Right? And, and Jesus, what does he say? He says, this is my body. This is my blood. I'm the lamb. Take it and eat it. It's the sacrifice that I will make for you for the sins of the world, for the sins of Israel and the freeing of slavery. And so we partake in that as a reminder of that reality in our lives. If you believe in Jesus or you want to believe in Jesus, that's, that's a symbol that we do. So I encourage you to take that as well. And then we're going to close in one more song and then we'll be done. Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit contrast.church.